This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Fidelity. Placing a trade shouldn't be complicated. It should be smooth as butter. The Fidelity app makes investing easy with zero commission U.S. stock and ETF trades, no account minimums, and fractional shares trading. Fidelity, where nothing comes between you and the trade. That's smooth. Download our app free from the App Store or Google Play. Sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from $0.01 cent to $0.03 cents per $1,000 of principal. No account minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC, SIPC. And tonight, straight from the source, Republicans finally get a Biden under oath before Congress right as their push to impeach the president implodes. Their star witness has been indicted for lying about the Bidens and bribes. A big embarrassment for House Republicans who are still vowing to push ahead tonight. Also, an uproar over a first-of-its-kind ruling. The Alabama Supreme Court says that frozen embryos are children and destroying them could land you in prison. How it could impact fertility treatments for people who want to have a baby. And tonight, President Biden is weighing going it alone to address the border crisis after Republicans tanked a bipartisan border deal, an executive action that would make it harder for migrants to get asylum and easier for the U.S. to deport them. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, the impeachment investigators are back on Capitol Hill, just in time to interview their first member of the Biden family under oath, the president's brother, James. And they're preparing to haul in Hunter Biden to testify a week from today. They believe that they've got President Biden right where they want him, or so they had hoped. Instead, it has blown up in their faces in a very public and embarrassing way. The apparent centerpiece of this inquiry, as we now know, a now former FBI informant, says that his claims about the Bidens and the millions of dollars in bribe money actually came from Russian intelligence. So it would appear, if the newly indicted ex-informant Alexander Smirnov is telling the truth, and we don't know given his history, House Republicans did exactly what Vladimir Putin was hoping that they would. At this point, if the impeachment inquiry is not dead yet, it is certainly on life support. But just don't ask the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee that. Listen to what Jim Jordan said about this just a few weeks ago, about what the claims of this very informant are compared to what he's saying today. The most corroborating evidence we have is that 1023 form from this highly credible confidential human source. You said the 1023 is the most corroborating piece of information it you have. It corroborates, but it doesn't, it doesn't change those fundamental facts. So now but it's not true. Well, so, okay, so it's, it, the, the FBI told us that this source was so, 14 years this source was a paid source by the FBI. But your Again, promotion of a bribery scheme was false. Not at all. Not necessarily, not at all. But we'll talk about that in a moment more with one of Jim Jordan's colleagues in the House who has had a few choice things to say about what's been going on. But here's really where we stand tonight. The James Biden interview today lasted more than eight hours. Republicans still grasping at straws to keep this going. But as CNN has learned, James Biden was just the latest in a string of witnesses to tell Congress that Joe Biden did not have any involvement in his business dealings. 
Even Republicans' hand-picked witnesses here have undercut their claims, including in that now infamous televised hearing, I should note the only one that we've ever seen. And also, a Republican star witness is now facing federal charges. He's wearing an ankle monitor tonight, and the special counsel in that case is hounding a federal judge to put him back in jail pending trial, worried that he is a flight risk. With all of that as the backdrop, some Republicans are now trying to say it's the FBI's fault for relying on Smirnov in the first place. Joining me here tonight is Republican Congressman Ken Buck, who serves on both the House Judiciary and Foreign Affairs Committee committees. And Congressman, it's great to have you. Uh, you know, looking at what you said last September, you were condemning your own party's impeachment efforts, saying that Republicans in the House who are itching for an impeachment inquiry are relying on an imagined history. Did you ever think that, that it would collapse in this spectacular of a fashion? Well, Caitlin, it's even more of an imagined history now. Uh, obviously, uh, this witness, and, and we were warned at the time that we received the uh, document uh, outlining this witness's testimony. We were warned that uh, the credibility of this statement was was not known. And yet, uh, people, uh, my colleagues, went out and, and talked to the public about how this was credible and how it was damning and how uh, it, it proved President Biden's uh, at the time, Vice President Biden's uh, complicity in receiving bribes. Um, I, I, it appears to absolutely be false and to really undercut the, the nature of the charges. We've always been looking for a link between what Hunter Biden uh, received in terms of money and, and Joe Biden's activities or Joe Biden receiving money. Uh, this clearly is not a credible link at this point. So James Comer and Jim Jordan, they knew that this was not corroborated information, yet they still went public with it, talked about it on television, used it to fuel these investigations regardless? That's what it appears. Uh, it, I, I certainly didn't have any evidence uh, outside the statement itself that it was credible. And as a prosecutor for 25 years, Caitlin, I never went to the public until I could prove the reliability of, of a statement. And even then, the only, pro, only public statement a prosecutor makes is the charging document. Um, let's see what the evidence is in this impeachment, if there is more evidence, uh, before going forward. You've been very skeptical uh, of this effort that was so clearly in the making, this impeachment inquiry. You still voted for the impeachment inquiry, though. Do you now that what's happened this week wish that you had not voted for that? No, uh, a big difference between voting for an impeachment and an impeachment inquiry. The, the inquiry was uh, really required because the White House uh, declined to provide documents that were uh, uh, requested, subpoenaed, uh, because they, they said that uh, there was no formal impeachment inquiry voted on by the House. Um, at that point, I thought there is no downside to voting for an impeachment inquiry. As long as the public knows and as long as my constituents know, I don't believe that the evidence is there uh, that warrants an impeachment at this point, but uh, certainly an inquiry allows the gathering of information. Let's gather information, but let's not draw conclusions before we have all the information. Well, now that the witnesses that Republicans have brought in have undercut their claims, the informant is indicted. James Biden today saying that, that his brother had nothing to do with his business dealings. Is it time for Republicans to drop this impeachment inquiry? 
I don't know. I don't know what all the evidence is, Caitlin, and I don't want to uh, judge the uh, evidence one way or the other until I have a chance to sit down with the investigators and go through the evidence. But this certainly undermines a lot. If the if the impeachment inquiry was based on this witness, it undermines the credibility of this impeachment. I, I will say that it's suspicious that anybody would pay Hunter Biden as much money as they paid him. Uh, without any uh, expertise in the oil and gas industry, without any expertise in international banking. So those things are suspicious. But uh, again, there's no link directly to Vice President Biden's activities. So then why is there an impeachment inquiry? Because, I, I mean, the evi- what evidence is it that you're waiting to see? Because what we've heard ha- has all been basically undercut by this. I, I don't disagree with that, uh, Caitlin. I think that uh, what, what evidence I'm waiting to see in order to vote for an impeachment is that Joe Biden took actions based on payments that were made to Hunter Biden. I have not seen that yet, and I am still a, a no on an impeachment until I see that type of evidence. I guess my question is, is how do you continue an inquiry when the person that the inquiry was based on, which is this informant, that's the 1023 form that you're referencing that they said they couldn't corroborate. We now know this person has been indicted for lying to the FBI. So how do you continue an investigation based on someone indicted for lying? Well, if there's other evidence besides this witness's testimony, if there's other evidence that uh, indicates, could be bank records, could be a different witness that indicates that there is a connection, I think the inquiry is is warranted. Um, certainly Hunter Biden's activities are uh, bring the Biden family uh, really integrity into question. I think it's fair to look at those things. I think the public uh, has a right to know exactly what this vice president did. Right now, I don't see illegal activity from this vice president, um, but, but the, you know, the inquiry itself is fair. The federal government and other governments, uh, state and local governments, uh, examine people all the time and conclude they don't have enough evidence to go forward uh, with charges. And, and that's a that's a conclusion that uh, the Republicans in the House are going to have to reach unless there is some but direct evidence that uh, Vice President Biden. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You're on the House Judiciary Committee. Have you seen any evidence that justifies continuing it so far? This bit of investigation has been going on for a long oh. time. It's not new. It's not new. But but Caitlin, I distinguish between moving forward with an inqu- inquiry or an investigation and charging. Um, I absolutely think that an inquiry is fair. Looking at this situation is fair. Drawing the conclusion that Vice President Biden committed a crime, a uh, high crime or misdemeanor or an impeachable offense, um, I, don't, I don't draw that conclusion at this point. Uh, I think some people may look at this, though, and see even the handpicked witnesses by Republicans have undercut their claims. Here's what's happened here. And then they look ahead, you know, to what's happening March 1st, uh, a budget bill is due that we haven't seen any progress on so far and say House Republicans are focusing on the wrong thing here. Well, I think certainly I voted against the Mayorkas impeachment. Um, I've, I've voted against some of the uh, actions that I believe were political and, and not uh, that, that really move the ball forward in trying to help America at this point. I'm in favor of the Ukraine funding. It passed the Senate. I'm hoping it comes to the House floor. Uh, th- those are things that I think we need to work on. And, and certainly spending is one of those. Keeping the government open is one of those things, uh, one of those priorities. But uh, this, this doesn't necessarily take away, this investigation doesn't necessarily take away from the resources that are necessary to pass those other very important bills. 
Uh, yeah, I just think there's a lot of questions about the, the foundation of it and its very existence. Congressman Kim Buck, we'll see what happens when Republicans are back in Washington. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. I want to talk more about this ex-FBI informant, though, the one that uh, the special counsel is now saying should be still in jail as he awaits trial but has been released. And this possible Russian intelligence operation that has clearly potentially made its way into Congress. We have the former CIA chief of Russia operations and also CNN's national security analyst, Steve Hall, here. And it's great to have you, Uh, Steve. I think some people may look at this and wonder, how did this happen? How do you go from having someone who was considered a prized source at the FBI, who has now been turned into an indicted former informant. Yeah, there's there's a lot of questions, you know, valid questions about that, Caitlin. I mean, I, it was interesting to hear that this guy has actually been or actually was a, a confidential informant for the FBI for, for 10 years. Um, you know, having having been in the human source business myself previously, not domestically, but overseas, uh, you know, human beings are, are sometimes difficult to get to the bottom of. But when you're talking about a reporting relationship, you would think that those types of things would be addressed and taken care of in the first months or, you know, maybe a year into the relationship. And this is a apparently a 10-year relationship. So I'm sure people will be looking at that to try to find out how it was that somebody who ends up being a liar actually is reporting and providing information for, for that long of a period. Yeah, he was talking to his FBI handler on a daily basis, we're told. And, and Evan Perez has been reporting on this. And he says that the FBI had been suspicious of some of Smirnov's information as far back as 2020. But despite that, our reporting is there's no indication that he was polygraphed. Wouldn't it be typical for, uh, for that to happen, for the FBI to be able to assess their sources? You know, and I can't speak directly for uh, for for FBI uh, mo on this, uh, mm-hmm. but you know the polygraph is is a is a is a useful tool in some circumstances, not all circumstances, and it, you've got to be really careful with it because it can it, it's it's a very in uh, inexact type of device. But that said, there's a whole bunch of other types of uh, testing, uh, corroborating uh, from other sources. There's all sorts of things that can be done in the background to try to find out more about uh, who these sources are. Of course. If the source is actually acting on behalf of the Russian intelligence services or any state intelligence service worth their salt, it makes it a lot harder for people who are trying to find out where the lies are because you got professionals running this guy on the other side, which I think is probably what was happening in this case. So you believe he was basically a double agent? I believe the Russian intelligence services got a hold of this guy either or, or sent him in you know, cold and, and had him, had him make, make contact with the FBI that way. But I, this, this has all the, all the hallmarks of a, of a Russia disinformation operation. They're very good at this kind of thing. And that, again, makes it a lot harder for those looking for that type of operation to find the deception immediately, at least. Well, and given the history, recent history at least, of sources who were once prized and then became you know, notorious and, and investigated people like Christopher Steele, who I should note wasn't charged, if the FBI knew they couldn't corroborate his claims, why did it take until last summer to, to try to start unraveling them and to tell Congress, well, to tell the public, but also to tell Congress, given clearly these members, some of them had a propensity for pushing this stuff, even though they had been told, hey, this isn't corroborated information, but they're the ones who've been out there repeating it into oblivion, basically. Yeah, I think we're describing here, Caitlin, the, the sort of that line between uh, you know the professional, the, the collection of information and intelligence, and and 
law enforcement type of activities and then transitioning into the political handling of that information. Uh, I mean, sure, as, as we've been talking about, it's incumbent upon any organization that's running human sources to try to, to try to get to the bottom and find out the level of their veracity and then report that information to the government, to the U.S. government, with the appropriate caveats, if that's appropriate. You know, you can report something and say, we're not sure that this guy is telling the truth or there's these other issues. That's perfectly acceptable. Um, but then when, you know, politicians get a hold of this stuff and say, well, to me, that's, you know, exactly what I want to hear, mm -hmm. then it becomes a political question. It's no longer a law enforcement or intelligence question. Yeah. And now it's something that so many people will will believe that's still being pushed as they're downplaying it. Steve Hall, it's great to have you breaking this down. It's a fascinating story. Good to be here. Up next, there's a ruling that has sent shockwaves across the country as frozen embryos in Alabama are now considered to be humans. It's a decision that could end up having national implications for people who are seeking fertility treatment. Also tonight, President Biden may be taking a major executive action on the border soon. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Tonight in my home state, the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System is now pausing in vitro fertilization procedures after the state Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are considered children. That ruling came from a pair of lawsuits in which couples had sued a clinic for wrongful death after their embryos were accidentally dropped on the floor and destroyed. But now, out of fear of the legal consequences of this new ruling, healthcare providers in Alabama say that they are stopping IVF treatments. Reproductive rights advocates and medical experts are warning that that decision is going to have a profound impact on patients. My next guest tonight could be one of the hundreds of thousands of potential IVF patients affected. Julie Eshelman is a military wife and a mom to a beautiful two-year-old daughter who was conceived with the help of IVF. For Julie, that was a five-year odyssey involving multiple miscarriages and heartbreak. And now the prospect of growing her family has been thrown into doubt yet again. Her family is preparing for another move, potentially to Alabama, and what she will do with her embryos remains an open question tonight. And Julie is here with us now. And Julie, I just want to say I'm so grateful that you're here. I mean, everyone knows the grueling and expensive process that is IVF. And just given that, I want to know what you thought when you found out about this ruling and the implications that it could have. Honestly, I was shocked. Um, you know, I was enjoying the long weekend out of town with my family and I got on Facebook and I saw a, po a post about it. And I mean, my heart just dropped. I shocked is really the only way to describe it. 
because of the implications that it really could have on family building and IVF, not only in Alabama, but nationwide. And what's your biggest concern with that? That access to IVF is going to be stripped away. I mean, it's already hard enough to access insurance coverage for IVF for many families. And the idea that now you have to be worried about where you live, or for me, where my husband is stationed, and whether or not that would even be legal for us to pursue IVF, to move our embryos to that state so that we didn't have to travel for treatments. Um, there's, I mean, there's just more things than I can even articulate at this moment that I'm concerned about. And this is something that, that you've confronted before, before. I mean, I know when you, when you, before when you moved and you were going from Illinois to Pennsylvania, you moved them, but that was only after you saw the state turn blue in the election. And I think the, the concern is what would happen if you, if you took them, would you feel that they were at risk if you took these embryos, your embryos to Alabama, given this ruling? Oh, most certainly. I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I don't even know that I would actually even think about moving them to a state like Alabama, um, given the current climate, just because I know that they're safe where they're at right now. Um, and I mean, I don't even know if we would be able to pursue family building if we were to be stationed in a state that, you know, with this ruling suddenly changed their personhood laws or, you know, changed access to IVF. How does it feel as someone who has gone through IVF and knows, you know, how painful it is, how grueling it is, how difficult it is for so many women? And it's obviously normally a really private thing that, that people want to talk about. It must feel strange to now have to consider what the government thinks about that decision. It must feel invasive. It, you know, Caitlin, it really does because there are so many decisions that a couple has to make when they are, you know, going through the family building process. Um, and that's just naturally, you know, going through the family building process. And then you add a diagnosis of infertility or, you know, other challenges that a couple might face in trying to build their family and they need to seek fertility treatments. You know, there's all these different decisions that go into that. And then now you're adding the complication of, you know, get the states getting involved in those decisions and lawmakers and politicians that, you know, have opinions on some of these subjects, but maybe they're not fully informed and fully understand the repercussions that these decisions and that these laws could have for families like mine. Yeah, it's certainly a concerning ruling. Julie, I'm grateful that you came on to talk about something like this because it, it impacts so many women and I, sharing your story is so important. So thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. It's an honor to be able to share my story and to raise awareness. Julie Eshelman, thank you. We have much more ahead on where this ruling could lead. There are major questions about the implications. We're also hearing presidential candidates, including Nikki Haley weighing on this. We'll tell you what she said right after a quick break. You just heard firsthand the personal fallout from this unprecedented ruling from the Supreme Court in Alabama that says frozen embryos now count as people. We're also hearing from 2024 candidates tonight weighing in. Here's what Nikki Haley said earlier. I mean, 
embryos to me are babies. So I even mean, those created through IVF. I mean, I had artificial insemination. Yeah. That's how I had my son. When you talk about an embryo, you are talking about to me um, that's a life. Haley agreeing with the ruling there, but also taking a more nuanced position, saying that IVF treatment is an incredibly personal issue. Here tonight, Nancy Northup, the president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights. And it's great to have you back. We just heard from Nikki Haley uh, again. She's on King Charles. They asked her uh, to follow up to clarify what, what she said there. And this is what she told them. I didn't say that I agreed with the Alabama ruling. What the question that I was asked is, do I believe an embryo is a baby? I do think that if you look in the definition, an embryo is considered an unborn baby. And so, yes, I believe from my stance that that is. The difference is, and this is what I say about abortion as well, we need to treat these issues with the utmost respect. What do you make of that answer? Not even just from a political sense, but but what it means for, for what someone who wants to be president, how they see this. I mean, let's just step back about how radical this decision was, this decision that frozen embryos at an IVF clinic are, in the court's words, children. I mean, it's patently absurd. But what is really frightening about the decision is it uses the very concept, and I am quoting the decision, of extrauterine children. I mean, if it weren't so uh, scary in its implications, you know, it almost sounds like a farce. It's, so it is problematic that anyone is framing this as a reasonable decision. I wrote that down as well to ask you about because I looked at it and it's the opinion. It, obviously, they're typically stored in freezers and it referred to them as extra uterine children. Is that a typical medical term? Of Have you ever course heard of not. An embryo is an embryo, right? A born child is a born child. And what is frightening here is the fact that, you know, we're seeing it all over, this erosion of reproductive autonomy. Of course, we saw it in the reversal of Roe versus Wade with respect to abortion. But now we're seeing it with families that want to create children being told that their decisions are not theirs to be made, but in this case, that Alabama will consider extra uterine children are what fertilized eggs are. I guess that's part of the irony here because what the judges, the justices were saying in their ruling was that this is about protecting life and protecting children. But so many women in Alabama use IVF to, to have children. I mean, out of the five of eight fertility clinics that have reporting data, more than 400 babies were born through the help of IVF treatments. So it, in turn, it could actually hinder more children being born because I mean, the UAB, the biggest healthcare system in Alabama, is now stopping these IVF procedures. That's right. And as your prior guest pointed out, you know, couples want to make these decisions for themselves. This is in the realm of the most personal decisions that people can make. And people want to create families. And the notion, again, to push a political agenda by taking a medical term, embryo, and turning it into, you know, extra uterine children. I mean, it is absolutely absurd, but again, frightening because we're seeing taking away reproductive autonomy, taking away reproductive health care decisions. And it's not just women, it's men and women when we're talking about access to IVF treatment for family creation. You mentioned Roe versus Wade. Would this decision have happened if Roe versus Wade had not been overturned by the Supreme Court? I don't think you would have seen the boldness 
that we're seeing from courts, from politicians, about the fact that they are pushing this agenda, equating embryos with full personhood. And so I do think that the reversal of Roe versus Wade has unleashed this notion that what we took for granted about being able to make decisions about contraception, about IVF, about abortion, that these were our decisions to be made, are all of a sudden being taken away. UAB closing, what's your concern that it's not the last? Well, it's a concern that this concept, again, of the extra uterine children could spread to other states. Personhood laws have always been a problem in other states. And again, it is just heartbreaking for families who may not be able to choose, as military families cannot, where they reside, to live in a state that doesn't respect their rights to make these family formation decisions for themselves. Nancy Northup, it's a wide-ranging decision. Thank you for joining us to talk about the impact it's going to have. Thank you. And of course, you can watch the rest of Nikki Haley's interview with King Charles. That will air at the top of the hour, so continue watching here on CNN. Up next for us here on The Source, President Biden, we are told tonight, is considering major new executive action at the southern border. The question is what the extent of it is after Republicans in the House tanked a bipartisan deal from the Senate. I feel good. Dad, are you singing to your cereal? Yes, I am. Like I knew that I would. No, a dance too? Come on, Ava. Silk almond milk. Starts the morning on a high note. Yow! Songs, dances, and dad jokes. So good. So good. I got you. Mm. Silk almond milk. With calcium, vitamins A, D, and E. Feel plenty good. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I.com slash Spotify. Tonight, CNN has learned that President Biden is considering an executive action to restrict the ability of migrants to be able to seek asylum at the southern border. The president trying to reclaim the mantle on an issue that he polls the weakest on. And of course, this comes fresh off what we saw in the House with Republicans there refusing to take up that bipartisan deal that came out of the Senate to secure the border, at least attempt to. It was a deal that they had demanded in exchange for more aid for Ukraine. But then, after it had been negotiated for months, they killed it at the behest of Donald Trump. While no final decision has been made, and we are told that the White House is not commenting on this reporting tonight, this action does appear to be an extension of some of the toughest measures that would have been in that border bill. I want to talk about this with two political vets, Paul Begala, a Democratic strategist, and Lee Carter, a Republican strategist and pollster. And Paul, I mean, obviously, this is something the White House was prepared to do if this immigration bill had gone forward. What does it say to you that now they're looking at it from an executive order, even though they claimed before that they were pretty limited on what they could do? They probably are pretty limited. You know, Barack Obama tried to use executive authority on immigration issues, and the courts backed him off of several of those. Donald Trump, the same. Uh, I think the president has a good argument. He says, we need new laws. And the political argument that wins is when he says, belatedly, but now says, we have to control the border. I will close the border if Congress gives me the power. You know what? I could go into an election with Joe Biden saying, I want to close the border and open the women's clinics. 
Mr. Trump wants chaos at the border, chaos in your daughter's lives and your sister's lives. Uh, that, those are two, because it's taking the Republicans' best issue away from them, or at least trying to neutralize it. Yeah, and it very well could. They, they could sign this executive order. It could be challenged in the courts. But even if it is, would it give President Biden a, a win here in the sense that he could say, well, at least I attempted to do this. House Republicans blocked this bill, and I at least tried to implement it from what I could do with the power of the pen? Well, I think it actually could hurt, because on the other hand, Republicans have been saying that he can do it without this law, that he could just do it if he wanted to. So if he can show that he can't, then maybe this would backfire on Republicans. So I think there's actually an interesting argument to be made here. What do you make? People want order. They, we, we love immigrants. We, you know, I think W had it right. I think Obama had it right, right? And we used to say we're a nation of laws and a nation of immigrants. And I do think the Democrats have been uh, uh, slow to come to the conclusion that we've got to have order. Once you then have order, then people open their hearts. They love immigrants. They want immigrants, but they got to have order. Biden is now going to give them order. Lee, on another note tonight, something that stood out to me is we heard from Laura Trump, Trump's daughter-in-law, but also now apparently going to be the next co-chair of the Republican National Committee after he endorsed her for that role. She was talked about Trump's legal bills, which we know have been ballooning and skyrocketing. And she said this about what she thinks Republican voters think about that. Do you think paying for uh, President Trump's legal bills is something that would, is, is of interest to Republican voters? Absolutely. That's why you see the GoFundMe get started. That's why people are furious right now when they see the attacks against him. They feel like it's an attack not just on Donald Trump, but on this country. But do Republican donors want to pay Trump's legal bills? Not all Republican donors do, but I've got to say there is a huge set of Republicans, specifically Trump supporters, who do want to support him. I spoke with one voter who said, and this really just stuck out to me, said he has fought for us. Now it's our time to fight for him. And they're really looking at this as a time to support him. When they talk about his legal bills, this is about the campaign. For them, they feel like this is about a fight for democracy, that the system is rigged, that there is a two-tier system of justice, that they have to fight back. They want a fighter in Donald Trump, and they want to support him. And if that means that their money needs to go to the court cases, then they'll do it. And it's really hard for everybody else to understand, because if you don't support Donald Trump, you don't see it that way. But that's how his supporters see it. Paul Bogala, how do you, a non-Trump supporter, I should note, <laughs> I, I, that wasn't obvious. I yet. think it would be amazing if just once Donald Trump had a thought about anybody other than Donald Trump. He's going to some of the best people in the country, some of the poorest people in the country, taking their money for his needs. Everything is about him. And when he's on the stump, it's all about him. He, he is, you know, he's like Pavarotti warming up before the opera. Me, 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 me. And Joe Biden ought to say, I'm going to be for you. And I think that's a nice distinction because people actually want their president to work it, for them. It is an interesting distinction, but 82% of Trump supporters feel like he cares about them. Yes, that but he's fighting Trump for supporters. them. Trump supporters. I, no, I, I mean, we actually have half a country that can't stand a guy. And so I, 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 don't think, I don't think spending all my time analyzing Trump supporters is all that useful because they're there and God bless them. And, and we hope that they all vote and we love them. And we hope they give all their money to legal bills for Mr. Trump. I could give a rip. But the people going to decide this election are not in search of a president who's going to focus on himself and his own legal woes. Well, I mean, what about Republicans, though, who maybe they don't love Trump being the top of the party, but they care about other Republicans getting elected? I mean, is that the best use of the RNC to use it to pay for his legal bills? I'm not sure it's the best use, but certainly when you look at so much of the polling, there's so many Republicans out there who do feel whether or not they support Trump, they do feel the system is rigged against them. They do feel like things are unfair. They want a fighter. 
And this is more than 80% of Republicans say that they want somebody to fight back. And so they are looking for this. I don't think that they necessarily want to support his legal bills. I don't think it's that. But there's something symbolic about this fight that I think people want to be part of. Speaking of raising money, sometimes the most, you know, forthcoming comments that we see from President Biden are at these yeah. fundraisers that he does. They're behind closed doors. Unfortunately for us, they're not on camera. But he's I always read the reports because he, he's often very blunt and very Biden-esque. And tonight he's at one in San Francisco. And he was talking about climate and the change that it threats, the threat that it poses. But he also slipped into this moment where he was talking about President Putin. And he called him an SOB and was talking about the very real nuclear threat. And I wonder what you make of, of how Biden has been speaking about Putin compared with what we've heard from, from Trump himself just saying yesterday that he's like the, the dissident who was killed in Russia. Yeah, I think this is great. This is Biden being strong and Trump being weak. And Trump voters love this notion that he's strong. And I think Biden should press this. Putin's got something on Trump. And what he's got is a, a particular part of his anatomy right in his pocket. Trump spends all his time bowing before Putin, on his knees to Putin. He's weak, weak, weak. And here's Joe, who's supposed to be a doddering old man. He's ready to take the fight to Putin. So I like that as a Democrat. I like it as an American. Putin is our enemy. And I don't want to see anybody in either party bowing before him the way Mr. Trump is pathetic. It's, it's actually very weak. It's, I, I don't understand well, why he's such a wuss. It's also very Republican-esque to, for Republicans to embrace someone who, who doesn't condemn the Russian, the Russian leader. No, it's not at all. I mean, it's not what you would expect. I mean, you think back to Mitt Romney when he said the biggest threat to America is Russia, and he was made fun of for that. So I it mean, is. A, by me, I'm sorry to interrupt. By me, and I later apologized publicly because I was wrong and Mitt was right. And I think it just if, good, there you good, go. good political decency requires that I point that out. I was one of those knuckleheads. Well, it, it, and I think it's just a fascinating turn, right? That this is where we are right now, except I do think that Republicans look at Donald Trump and they think he's being a tough negotiator. They think he's somehow being smarter than everybody else by saying, oh, Putin's so smart. They think that he's doing something crafty, the art of the deal or something behind the, behind the curtain um, of what he's doing. I don't think that they're looking at it as weakness. Lee Carter, Paul Begala, thank you for your, what did you call it when you apologized? Your decency? Well, I try to be decent. Yeah. I, I often <laughs> fail, but yeah, I, I at least try to be accountable. Even for a Texas fan. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Also tonight, CNN has gotten some new Secret Service documents and what they say about one member of the Biden family, Commander, the German Shepherd, on the record, 24 biting accidents, what that means for the Secret Service and the impact of that next. We have new CNN reporting tonight that reveals that President Biden's dog, Commander, bit Secret Service personnel in at least 24 incidents, 24 that's according to documents obtained by CNN. And these documents include images of clothes torn by one of his bites. I should note this number, 24, does not include the additional biting incidents that involved other White House staff on the grounds, which we know from our previous reporting has happened. But these new documents do reveal that the German Shepherd's behavior became a serious hazard in the workplace, and it forced the Secret Service to actually adjust their tactics. Joining me here tonight is former Secret Service Special Operations Officer and President and Founder of Canine Hurricanes Heroes, Marshall Meraki, along with his canine, Hurricane. It's so great to have you. I don't think we've ever had a dog on this show. So first off, this is a huge win for us, and I'm just happy to have you. But, but Marshall, on the seriousness of this, you know, we are told Commander is no longer at the White House. He is now with other members of the family. But when you hear that agents had to actually change their tactics, given, you know, their job is to protect the president— I wonder what you make of that. 
Yeah, I mean, um, that's definitely disheartening to hear. Um, I spent over 10 years at the White House. I have a lot of experience with the family pets. You know, we started with uh, President Bush and the Scottish Terriers, and then I did all eight years on Obama's uh, President Obama's SWAT team with his uh, Portuguese water dogs. So definitely didn't experience um, some of the things that are, that are going on now, but uh, it's definitely a different environment for sure. It sounds like the problem has been taken care of, but yet yeah, 24 is definitely a, a astounding number to say the least. Is there any, I think first off when this first was happening, I was still covering the White House and the question was, is there anything that, that they could do to fix this? Obviously, presidents have long had their pets, as you mentioned, at the White House with them. Is there any kind of training that could have have resolved this clearly, you know, behavior of, of a dog that was moved into a White House with a lot of people around, which isn't a typical environment? Yeah, you know, being a dog lover and obviously the charity, you know, I, I always side with the dog. So the, the dog can be trained and, you know, probably at one time that could have been fixed. You know, obviously now I think it's a little a little too far gone for that, but a lot of it comes with you know knowing your dog. Um, you know, Hurricane since the day he was born has been trained to protect, been trained to bite. So I have to be cognizant of that. You know he's technically was a you know a weapon when he was working. So I have to be very careful if I would let him you know run around free, he would he would do the same thing. So a lot of it is just you know on on the owner to make sure that. Those things don't happen. If you are going to have a dog that, uh, you know, is going to roam free and bite somebody, that that's obviously something that that can't continue. I've had him twelve years, and I, you know, I know when he can be, you know, roaming free and when he has to be, obviously, uh, at my side. And that's that's on me, you know, to protect other people from getting hurt, and then obviously to protect him because I don't want to put him in a situation where he thinks he's doing the right thing, yeah, you know, and then you know. He's in trouble. Yeah, he thinks he's at work. I mean, we we all saw the the dogs at the White House. They had vests on that say, obviously, do not pet the dogs. Uh, I mean, he was there with you when you he was a Secret Service dog. He was there with you when you were also in the Secret Service. What has the transition been like from from going from the White House to to being a, a pet outside of the White House? So he's changed completely now. He's almost fifteen, so he's obviously very different, but. He did retire early from that uh, incident during President Obama's administration when the intruder jumped the front lawn and Hurricane did jump out and and stop him. But he got, you know, he got hurt pretty bad in the process. So he retired early. He's been retired over seven years. So the process has been uh, very gradual. And as you can see now, it's, he's pretty much in full pet mode every now and then. He will, you know, try and protect me, but he's he's pretty much a full full time pet at this point, which is is good. That's what I wanted. I, I want the dogs to be able to enjoy their retirement. He is so cute. Next time you guys have to come in studio, this is my next condition for when you join. Marshall, Meraki, and Hurricane, thank you for coming on tonight to talk about this. Thank you so much. Ahead, on a more serious note, this story that we're following closely here, another U.S. citizen was just detained in Russia. A ballerina charged with treason for donating to a certain charity and the fight now underway to bring her home. A 33-year-old Russian-American has now been detained in Russia and charged with treason, all because of a $52 donation to a Ukrainian charity here in the United States. Russian officials have charged Ksenia Karolina with providing financial assistance, they claim, to an enemy state. An American official tells CNN that Karolina, a dual citizen, traveled to Russia on January 2nd, and that the U.S. found out about her arrest just a few days ago 
on February 8th. Her boyfriend spoke to CNN earlier tonight. Knowing Ksenia is, that's the difficult part is, I know who she is. She's, she's so full of life. She needs to be out there. She, in, in the sense of she needs to be with her friends. She needs to live life. I believe in America. I, I do believe that America will bring her back to me and that that's the hope I'm holding on to. Right now, we are told U.S. officials have not been given consular access to Carolina. Russia is claiming that she will be detained until April, although we've seen them extend those before. We'll continue to keep an eye on that. Thank you so much for joining us. King Charles starts now.